I don't know about you, but I actually feel like we're getting closer. And what I mean by that is this is a season where we don't like flip a switch from death to resurrection, but we sense the way that God leads us from death to resurrection, the way that God woos us toward it, the way that our lives can go from dark to light, and not by ignoring the darkness or pretending that there's not anything dead, but actually by facing it, right? And I don't know about you, but I, I actually have, like in these last few weeks, been feeling like we're getting closer and some of it is like the season's actually really nice. Like it's nice that things are actually getting lighter. Um, there was like a real intelligence in the early church that like we sort of cooperated with this physical, geographic, ecological thing, which is there's a time of the year where dark begins to become light. And we sort of grabbed that and said that's the right time for our bodies and our souls and our brains to participate in this pattern that Jesus leads us into, which is death and resurrection and so I've been feeling that in the season change, and I've been feeling it in our community, and I've been feeling some of that in my life, and I'm really grateful for that. Uh, we've gotten there not by ignoring the hard stuff, but by trying to confront some of it. And so we've talked about mortality, and we've talked about doubt, and we've talked about conviction when, when you know that you're wrong, and when the right word for what you've done is sin, and we've talked about betrayal and forgiveness. And I don't know about you, but I've, I've felt that this has been both good and hard for us. And today we want to press into another one of those um, difficult experiences, right? Uh, to get there today, we're going to look at uh, a moment in Jesus' life that's told in all four Gospels. So if you know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these are the four stories of Jesus in the New Testament. And the story that I'm going to show you, it shows up in all four tellings of Jesus' life. And in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in those three, it shows up during that last week of Jesus' life before he's crucified. So it's like moving into Holy Week in the scriptures there. So it seems like kind of fitting that we would look at that uh, right now as we're getting ready for Holy Week, which begins a week from today. Uh, this is after Jesus has come into Jerusalem. And this is where the confrontation between Jesus and his enemies is heating up, where the friction is getting worse, where the resistance is digging in against him. Let me show you this moment in Matthew 21. Then Jesus entered the temple, and he drove out all who were selling and buying in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. This is angry, Jesus, and it makes me a little uncomfortable. Like, it actually makes me a little uncomfortable. When I read through the Gospels, there are moments, uh, like, I like best friend Jesus, you know. I like cuddly Jesus, right? This is neither of those. This, this, this feels like an energy that's uncomfortable for me, right? Times when I preach this in the past, because I, I think better preaching takes you further into the experience of the text. So I've thought when preaching this text, I have actually, like, imagined maybe I should flip some furniture on the stage. Seriously, I've wondered if that would be the best way to help us feel the uncomfortable energy of this, but I haven't done it because I'm afraid that would actually feel unsafe. Like, if I actually was flipping furniture up here, it might feel a little bit violent. And I don't think we want to feel that when we're here today. And yet here we have, um, for lack of a better word, angry Jesus. Today I want to talk about anger. That um, sometimes uncomfortable, undignified, difficult experience that we call anger. Now it's clear sometimes anger just comes from immaturity, right? Uh, I was a temper tantrum kid. I mean, like, not, not like normal. I mean, I was a very, very, very temper-driven child. My parents can vouch for this if you want to talk to them. 
Like, I have vivid memories as a kid of my bedroom door being removed from its frame. Because if you slam your door, you don't get a bedroom door, right? Like, my parents uh, still live in the house that we moved into when I was 10 years old. And to this day, I can walk around that house and see divots in the wall that were caused by my temper tantrums. I'm not sure my parents have noticed all of them, but I still know where they are, right? I'm like, yep, that was that day in middle school when it just came raging out of me and I was throwing things and breaking things. Any of you relate? Don't point at your kids, I'm talking about you now. Um, yeah, I was like a temper tantrum kid and that was obviously like, I needed to grow up, I needed to figure out how to, how to work through the things I was feeling, there's a lot there, right? I mean, sometimes temper can be um, just like an immature thing. Sometimes uh, temper can be an ego thing, like when your ego is offended and then you're angry about it, right? And if, if you sit and you think about it for a minute, you would realize that's just an ego thing. You should just get over your ego, right? Some of us have seen that uh, anger can lead to actual violence. And for very good reason, we have a problem with that because we're not here to affirm violence and we might have seen people hurt by that violence. And so for that reason, Anger might feel unsafe because you've seen that it can lead to actual unsafety, right? Um, sometimes when you see anger or feel anger, um, like the overwhelming sort of bottom line experience of that could basically be that something's wrong with, if you're the angry one, something's wrong with you. Or if they're angry, that anger is about something that's wrong with them, right? There, there can be all of that. And then you take anger and you amplify it in the digital world that we are living in today. And there are days when it can feel like Facebook and Twitter are places that just amplify anger, right? It can feel like cable news just broadcasts anger sometimes, right? It can feel that way. I, I feel that sometimes. And there's days when I just have to check out on like what's happening on Twitter because the energy of it is so angry. It can feel performative, right? Like we're competing to see who can have the most outrage, right? As if like, like I'm better than you if I'm angrier than you about the things that are wrong, right? Like it can be rooted in a kind of self-righteousness. Like my anger is how I know that I'm better than the people who are less angry than me. I mean, that, that, that can certainly be a thing that's going on, right? I mean, just, uh, just last night, just last night, I got a DM on a social media platform from a person who's very angry at me who I've never met, who has a real problem with me and this church. And um, they used... Um, some of the more violent language I've ever had used against me or directed at me. And I was just sitting there looking at it last night thinking, yeah, some of that is what these platforms are amplifying today. But then there's this problem, which is um, my read on Jesus, and you don't have to share my read on Jesus, but my read on Jesus is it doesn't work to attribute his actions to immaturity or ego. Because I don't, I don't read immaturity or ego in Jesus so when I see Jesus angry in the temple, it raises all sorts of questions for me, like, is anger ever good? Is it ever rooted in anything good? Does it ever do anything good? Because if I see Jesus enacting his anger in the temple, I, I've got to at least ask the question, right? So I want to work out what's going on with Jesus here a little bit. Uh, I want to put some context around this and see if we can um, find something there. And for some, this might sound like review because we've looked at this text before and some of this context we've looked at before, but let's just kind of get all on the same page here, okay? So Jesus is in the temple. The temple is um, hard to describe in terms of its importance for the Jewish people. Like you can take whatever place in the world is the most singly important for you religiously, spiritually, morally, politically, relationally, ethnically. If you could put all of that together in one place, you end up with the temple 
For the Israelites, the temple is the place where God's presence dwells with them. And the thing about God's presence being with them is not just that you want God to be with you, but that if God is with you, if God's presence is there, then that tends to come with the assumption of another guarantee. Because in that ancient consciousness, if, if God is in your temple with your people, well, then God's not going to let your people or your temple or your place be defeated by enemies because God is invested in his own reputation there. So why would he let the enemies come in and take over the place where he dwells, right? So not only do the Israelites have God with them in their temple, but there are these sort of assumptions of safety and security that come along with that. It's a really big deal to have an intact temple where God is there. On top of that, you've got um, the things that happen in the temple, the worship and the sacrificial cult, which are, are their way of living in relationship with that God. Then you've got all the political power of the Israelites concentrated around the temple. It, you've got a physical gathering there as people come in from disparate places around the world to worship at the temple. This is where the action is, right? And Jesus walks right into that place and does this very disruptive sort of angry thing. Now, when we were uh, reading the text, you might have noticed we heard about money changers and doves. Let's talk about money changers and doves for a minute. If you're a good Jew in the first century, one of the things that you're going to do is you're going to obey the law that requires that you pay your annual temple tax. And that's basically how the people of Israel pay for the communal life of Israel that's expressed at the temple, right? There's a lot to pay for there. So the problem is, though, that at this point, Jews living, are living in scattered places throughout um, that little part of the world, Right? And Jews living in different places, all these little villages, all these little sort of municipalities or mini kingdoms inside the Roman Empire, each one has their own currency. So you've got Jews coming in from all over that part of the world, and each of them are bringing their own form of currency as they come to pay the temple tax. And the other problem is many of these currencies fluctuate wildly in their value. Picture a Bitcoin graph. Anyone? Okay. Okay. Uh, Venezuelan currency, I don't know, like just picture, picture a currency that's very unstable, and some, some of these currencies are very unstable. So you're the temple administrators, and you're trying to figure out what do you do with people coming in from all over, and they're all bringing different kinds of currency. You might not even know what that currency is worth today relative to the value that you're supposed to get for the temple tax. You've got a real problem, right? So the temple decides they're only going to accept a temple tax paid in the form of one kind of currency, which comes from a place called Phoenicia, a place called Tyre in the Phoenician precinct, and the, the currency is called a drachma. So you've got to pay your, your temple tax in a drachma. It would be a little bit like if we said you could only pay uh, for your taxes in U.S. dollars and you're showing up with pesos or something like that, right? So you're going to have to trade that in so that you can pay your tax in dollars, except there you've got to pay your tax in drachmas from Tyre in the Phoenician territory. Make sense so far? Okay. So has anybody gotten off a plane traveling international, walking through an airport overseas, and the first thing you see is a currency exchange, and you think, oh, thank goodness, this is going to make things easier, right? Especially like before we paid for everything with Apple Pay and credit cards, right? You get off the plane, you got some American currency in your pocket, and you're, you're thankful, you're grateful that there's a currency exchange booth right there, right? That's literally the basic function of the money changers in the temple. Then we have the doves. Well, when you travel from wherever you live to the temple for your annual pilgrimage or for a high holy day, not only are you going to bring your temple tax, but you're going to bring an animal to sacrifice. This is a way of, of living in relationship with God at that time. This is the way they understand that, right? Well, when you bring your sacrifice, the animal that you bring has to be perfectly, completely unblemished. Well, imagine um, you're the person who's able to use a dove for your sacrifice, which is prescribed in the law. And so you pack up your bags and you pack up your perfect unblemished doves and then you travel by foot for a week or two. 
That dove might not be so unblemished when you pull it out of whatever little cage or package you had it in for the last two weeks as you walked on those ancient roads, right? So rather than pack up an unblemished dove hoping that a week or two later you get there and it's still perfect, why not just buy a dove at the temple that's preserved and ready to be presented to the priest? Make sense? So these two functions, the money changers and the dove sellers, they probably started as like a, a useful service, like in the same way that I get off the airplane and I'm really happy that there's a currency exchange. I mean, these are the means by which these people fulfill the law and live in, in right relationship both with God and the community around them. So it's useful that there are services there that are ready to help you do that, except if you have traveled internationally much, you might know that if you get off the airplane and you exchange currency at the first currency exchange that you see in the airport, you're an idiot. You know why? Because they have a captive audience and they jack the exchange rate so they make more margin. Right? They know that they've got you when you walk off that plane and that you probably, many of us, aren't, aren't going to do the work to find a more competitive exchange rate outside the airport. They've got you. And it seems that the situation set up in the temple is just loaded with temptation for the money changers and the dove sellers to use their position to skim a little more margin, a little more margin, a little more margin for themselves. And pretty soon you have people who stand between the people and God, who use their position between the people and God to just make a little more for themselves every day. You can sense that, right? Well, it gets worse. There's even more packed into this experience because what's been understood from rabbinical records is that at the time of Jesus, there had been a marketplace on the Mount of Olives just outside the temple, just outside, just across this little valley from the, from the temple there. And that was the place that you would go to deal with the doves and the temple tax exchange, right? But then Caiaphas, who runs the temple, Caiaphas realizes it's his political enemies that run the marketplace on the Mount of Olives, and he wants to both make the money for himself and put them out of business as an act of vengeance against them. So Caiaphas sets up the marketplace in the temple as an act of competition and political vengeance against his enemies. So the very participation that's happening in that marketplace is participating in political warfare that's being played out using the temple as a pawn. You feel the problems with that, right? Jesus walks into the temple and he sees a system that was set up for the political power of a religious leader that has temptation baked into it for the people who stand between the people and God to make a little more and a little more and a little more. By the way, the doves, the doves are the sacrifice of the poor. If you read the Levitical law, not everyone brings a dove. If you will, um, say middle-class Israelites, they don't bring doves. They bring other types of animals. The doves are the sacrifice of the poor. And it seems that they're in the temple where they've got a captive audience. There was a temptation to take advantage of those with the least means. And shave a little more and a little more and a little more for the people who'd position themselves between the people and God. Now, if you're wondering if this really is about all of that, Jesus gives us a clue of what his act means by the things that he says in this moment. If you remember that text I read to you from Matthew, he says, you've made this a den of robbers. Now that's not a generic phrase. Jesus didn't come up with that. Jesus is quoting one of the ancient Israelite prophets. So generations before Jesus, a man named Jeremiah had stood on the steps of the temple on the same location that Jesus is at this day, and Jeremiah, sent by God, the prophet of God, had cried out what we call the temple sermon 
of Jeremiah. And Jesus is quoting Jeremiah's temple sermon when he talks about the den of robbers. So let me go back to Jeremiah and show you the thing that Jesus was grabbing and bringing forward into this moment. This is Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 1 through 11. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house, that's the temple, and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah, you that enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings and let me dwell with you in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Don't, don't call yourself with that false security. He goes on, for if you truly amend your ways and your doings, if you truly act justly with one another, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, and the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own hurt, then I will dwell with you in this place in the land that I gave of old to your ancestors forever and ever. And there's a little more. Here you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal? Will you commit adultery? Will you commit murder? Will you swear falsely? Will you make offerings to Baal and then go after other gods that you've not known and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say to yourself, we're safe only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? That's what Jesus is reaching back to when he enacts this anger in the temple. It's like Jeremiah is saying, you have a false sense of security because you think as long as you've got the temple, you're good. But you don't seem to understand that as long as you betray God and hurt God's beloved, as long as you commit acts of injustice and infidelity, this temple is not going to do you any good. And having this temple and running into this temple is a sham. It's like he knows that the greatest threat to the well-being of this people is the false sense of security that they have. And the prophet is sent to shake them out of it, to wake them up a little bit. And Jesus quotes that language generations later when he's flipping tables in the temple. It seems to me that um, if we're going to try to understand Jesus' anger... We would understand that, that um, the temple can be corrupted and become the kind of place that masks over the ways that we hurt one another and dishonor God. And when he sees that, he, he's going to do something about it. Something gets awakened in him. Something gets enacted in him. I think it's anger, but I think it's anger at its best. Because I think, and let me show you this, I think anger at its best is what love looks like when the beloved is attacked. I think anger at its best is what love looks like when the beloved is attacked. And Jesus seems to see a, a system which is an affront to the actual nature of God, and it's hurting the people that God loves. It's abusing them. It's taking advantage of them. It's robbing them. And it seems the best word for what happens in Jesus is anger. But I don't think it's rooted in immaturity or ego. I think it's because the beloved is being attacked. This is why for me, um, as a pastor, I'm learning uh, that as I walk with people, sometimes anger isn't a sign that something's wrong. Sometimes it's a lack of anger that tells me something's wrong. I'm actually, I'm learning this slowly as I walk with people. Sometimes I'm walking with a person and they're going through um, a difficult experience or somebody they love is going through a difficult experience. And I'll think to myself, man, if I were in your shoes, I would be angry about that. And I'll ask, are you angry at all? 
And sometimes, if they say no, that's actually a sign that something's wrong. Something needs to wake up inside them. Sometimes, that's the case, right? I mean, by the way, like if you have a family system where anger can never be expressed, that's a dysfunctional family system. If we have a society where anger can never be expressed, that might be a society where far too many of us have made too much peace with the way things are when it's hurting people. Uh, in fact, I think some of the people who are angry right now about the world that we have created, I think some of the people who are angry are actually the most awakened. And they're calling some of us to ask ourselves if love needs to look like something in a world where some people are being hurt and kept down. Now, I, again, I completely agree that there is um, unhelpful anger and immature anger and violent anger, and we should be done with those things. But when I see Jesus getting angry in the temple, it, it tells me there's probably a version of anger that is holy, and it might even do some good. Now, if you want to check your anger, if you want to ask yourself, how would I know if my anger is good or bad? How would I know if it's the stuff that would help things or the stuff that hurts things? Well, watch what happens next with Jesus. So let me show you the next line in the story of Jesus in the temple where we read this. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he cured them. Now, this is one of the moments where it's hard reading an ancient text, because most of us, maybe all of us here in the room, we read that, and we might think, oh, that's nice. That, that's really nice. Isn't that nice, right? But we would miss the radical thing that just happened here. But, of course, Matthew, who writes this gospel, and Jesus, who lives this gospel, and all the original audiences of this gospel, and all the Jews, all the Israelites at this time, when they hear this, there's going to be like lights flashing, bells ringing. This is significant because they would all know what Leviticus says about blind and lame people in the temple. So let me show you Leviticus uh, 17, 21. Uh, Leviticus 21 this is the instructions that are given to the Israelites about what needs to happen in the temple. Listen to this. For the generations to come, none of your descendants who has a defect may come near to offer the food of his God. By the way, the temple is where you offer the food of your God, okay? No man who has any defect may come near. No man who is blind or lame, disfigured or deformed. No man who is blind or lame. Jesus gets angry. What's the next thing that happens? The people who are excluded get brought into the center, and the people who are sick are healed. That's what happens when Jesus gets angry. People get healed and included. Like the family gets put back together when Jesus gets angry. If you want to know if your anger is at its best, ask yourself, will it help you heal anyone? Will it help you include anyone? Will it help you put anything back together? Could you take some of that energy that's generated by anger? Anger is a powerful energy. Could you channel it? toward healing or inclusion for somebody? Could you channel it toward putting the world back together a little bit? That might be a sign that your anger isn't rooted in ego or immaturity. It might be a sign that your anger is rooted in love. Because when you see people getting healed or included, that seems to be what love looks like. This is why I think anger at its best is what love looks like when the beloved is attacked. The blind and the lame come to him in the temple where they're not supposed to be. And they are healed. Now there's one more uh, movement in this story of Jesus in the temple. Uh, let's work this out. Uh, next slide. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the amazing things that he did, and they heard the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. Now that line, by the way, is uh, Hosanna means literally like save now, like save us. 
And it's a word that you would give to a Messiah or a king because they're going to be the ones that like protect the people, deliver the people, liberate the people, right? So the kids are crying out, Hosanna to the son of David with reference to Jesus. And the chief priest became angry and said to Jesus, do you hear what these kids are saying? And Jesus said to them, yep. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise for yourself? That's a psalm addressing God. And then Jesus left them and went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. Now this scene is um, interesting, it's peculiar. And I was studying commentaries on this text uh, this week. And I stumbled across an interpretation that I just found so compelling that I had to share it with you. This is one of those moments where I'd say it's interpretive. I don't know that it's the reason that Matthew put it in there or not, but it's an interpretation that I think has some grounding or some merit, and it just stirred me. So I want to share it with you. The commentator asks, why is it that right after Jesus enacts his anger and um, disrupts the system, which is keeping people from God, and which has injustice baked into it, after Jesus does that, uh, why is it that it's the children who celebrate? And this one commentator said, I think it's because Anywhere you go in the world, the one reliable place, the one reliable group of people um, um, where you can find people who are not so invested in the status quo that they can't celebrate the disruption of the status quo, the one group of people that reliably are able to celebrate the new when it liberates people are the children that they haven't lived long enough and invested themselves deeply enough in the systems as they are, which means they're free to celebrate when some of those systems get disrupted to bring people in and heal people, to make things right. He said, that's why it's the kids who sing. And even some of the adults who from a distance might have said, I think that's probably a good thing that Jesus is doing, but I wish he would have been a little tamer about it. (laughs) Some of the adults might have had to listen to the children celebrating and then let that song become their own only after they confronted the way that they are invested in the way things are. So Jesus shows up in the temple, and he sees a system that has developed that is rooted in a political warfare between Caiaphas and his enemies, where there's just a little too much temptation to use the position that they have, where they stand between the people and God, to scrape a little more for themselves, a little more for themselves, and to keep the poor away. And Jesus gets angry about it. He gets angry. He enacts that anger. And he flips over tables. And I think this anger was rooted in love for the beloved who are being kept down, kept back from God by this system. And the reason I think it's rooted in love is because love heals people. And love brings people in. And that's exactly what happens when Jesus gets angry. And then it's the little ones who just have this way of seeing things for what, for what they are, right? who celebrate. You ever had a kid, by the way, tell you something painfully obvious that you were unable to see? Right? The kids celebrate. And so today, um, the proposal is that while some of our anger is uh, deeply immature and rooted in an offended ego, while some of the stuff happening online or in our relationships is toxic and stupid, some of the anger that we feel or that we hear about might be the sign of a soul that's been awakened by love and that sees that the beloved is being attacked. And it might be that we could channel that anger towards something good and redemptive, and somebody might get healed, somebody might be brought in, 
the system might change. So um, today as we come to the table, I simply want to uh, ask us if there's any anger that we need to lay down, but also if there's any anger that love would have us pick up. If it's ego or immaturity, I think we should lay it down at the table. We should be done with it. We should grow up. But if the beloved is being attacked and we are being asked to do something about it, we might want to open our hearts to love and let it make us brave, maybe even make us fight for the beloved. I want to put some questions in front of us today. And these might lead you into some prayer or some reflection. Uh, We'll sit with these for a couple of minutes before I bring us to the table. Let's ask ourselves, are you carrying any anger right now? Maybe you're very aware of it, or maybe it's buried a few layers deep. Maybe you've been trying to ignore it because it's uncomfortable or it feels impolite. If you are, is it coming from immaturity or an offended ego? Probably be good to name that if that's true, right? But what about the anger that's not? Is any of it actually rooted in love? Could your anger make you better or more awakened, more committed to healing or justice? Is God speaking to you through your anger and inviting you to respond? Let's uh, let's take a minute with these questions. ask uh, those who are going to serve communion with me to come to the stage. And this feels like a fitting meal for this conversation, too. Uh, If Jesus was living a life of immaturity or ego, if his anger was rooted in that, then I think we would have found out when he was crucified. (laughs) I think that story might have gone differently, right? So I take it from that moment in his life where he lays down his life for love. I take it from that place that Jesus' life was compelled by love through and through. Which means that even when he flipped tables, it might have been love that was moving through him. So today, like I said, I would, I would propose that if any of us has any anger that we need to let go of or lay down, that we would leave it at the table today. And if any of us needs to wake up or stand up for the beloved, I pray that we would... Let this meal, which is love, make us brave and call us out and stir us up in a way that might heal someone or bring someone in. So let me remind you that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. And then he took a cup and he said, this is the cup of a new covenant of the promise of God's faithfulness forged in blood. Take and drink. So loving God, I pray that these elements would be for us today, the life of Jesus given for us and for the world. I pray that we would be awake and alive to love in all of its forms. I pray that if love stirs up anything uncomfortable within us, that we'd be brave enough to turn toward it, to see what it is that you might want to do through it. I pray that you'd call us out 
to be brave lovers of the world. And if we need to flip some tables, God, I pray that we would do it not out of ego or immaturity, but because you are asking the world to be better than it is today. And you're asking us to be a part of that. I pray that you'd meet us at the table in this meal today. I pray through Christ. We all said, Amen. The body of Christ broken for you, and the blood of Christ shed for you. The body of Christ broken for you, and the blood of Christ shed for you. The body of Christ broken for you, and the blood of Christ shed for you. The body of Christ broken for you, and the blood of Christ shed for you. The body of Christ broken for you, and the blood of Christ shed for you. The body of Christ broken for you, and the blood of Christ shed for you. The body of Christ broken for you, and the blood of Christ shed for you. The body of Christ broken for you, and the blood of Christ shed for you. Now, friends, as our uh, servers go to the table, then you're welcome to get up out of your seat if you'd like and uh, come forward to Jesus' meal.
keep saying, uh, anytime Zach takes the mic off the stand, I know I'm about to have the best moment of my week, right? Yeah, thank you guys, Roy and, and Zach, thank you. Uh, if you're able, you stand to your feet. If our anger is violent, if it's immature or driven by an ego that's offended, may we lay it down. But if love has seen that the beloved is being attacked then may we do whatever love calls for. And may our anger lead to healing. May it put the world back together. May the children sing. May those who aren't invested in the status quo be the first to say that the world is headed in the right direction. And may grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you guys. See you next week.